All right, well, good morning, Redemption. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the newer pastors here. I've been here about a month. Uh, this is my second time speaking, and you guys are just so welcome and embraced me and my family. So just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's been great. And we have been walking through the book of Ephesians, and uh, this morning we're going to be in Ephesians 5, as we just heard that scripture read. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, you can turn to Ephesians 5. If you don't have it with you, you can raise your hand, and one of our ushers would love to come bring you one. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to keep it, take it home. It's our gift to you. All right, well, sometimes I found that we can treat Christianity like a commission-based job where what you get is driven by how much you make, where your income is determined by your output, where you, your success is measured by how much you can sell. So I have a buddy, Luke, and he was, uh, you know, he had a commission-based job where he was newly married, had a baby, uh, had a baby on the way, and he, you know, he's like, okay, how, how do I make this thing work? He went to his boss. He's like, all right, I, I want to do well. I want to succeed. How do I do it? The boss is just like, raise your sails. It's like, all right, so I'm going to try. So he goes out and he, he, he gets trying. And, and it, the problem was it was a hard thing to sell. It was like radio ads in a small town and nobody wanted to buy him. So he started like leveraging friendships he had, using relationships, doing whatever he could. And, and, and he had some success and things were working, but then he hit hard times. And it wasn't enough. And he went back to the boss and just like, man, how can I get better? How can I improve? And the boss was just like, hey, just raise your sails. And so then he hits, uh, man, like this opportunity actually to cut some corners and to cheat. And even he's feeling ethically conflicted about it. But his boss was even pushing him to do it. And he was in this crisis, ethical crisis. And he realized, man, my boss's only concern is that you raise your sales. Sometimes I think we can treat God that way. We can feel like God's like that. Like we get into the gospel and we're like, all right, Jesus, how do I do this thing? How do I run after you? And God's like, all right, yeah, here, do some stuff. Join a Bible study, you know. Um, and so we, we jump in and we do the Bible study and we're gone. But we're like, we're, we still feel empty. So God, how do I succeed in this? And he's like, hey, just raise your sails, right? Like try harder, do more. And so we're like, okay, so I'm going to start uh, praying. I'm going to go serve in a ministry and we get that going. But still maybe even feel emptier. I'm like, all right, God, well, what now? And God's like, hey, raise your sails. Like, do more. Just do whatever you got to do to, to up the ante. And so, like, all right, I'm going to tithe. I'm going on a mission trip. I'm going to share my faith. And we just, we're pouring it all out. And we can get to this point where we feel like God's only concern is that you raise your sails. And we can slowly begin to live under the lie that you got to do more to get more. You got to succeed in order to receive that you've got to perform in order for God to provide. And if you're like me, you can get to start to get to a point where you're like, man, I don't even know that I buy the product I'm selling anymore. You know, like, dude, like those radio ads, no one else seems to want to buy them. I don't know it's working for me either. This is strange. You can start to feel like you're in this rowboat and you're just kind of rowing upstream and using all your strength and all your might and you're going as hard as you can. Your muscles get sore and you get tired out. You're just going, God, I don't know that this is working. Turn to the person next to you and tell them, stop rowing. There we go. <laughs> what we want to look at this morning is where does the power for the Christian life come from? 
Where does the strength come from? Where do we get our strength, our energy, our might? Where is the vigor and the vitality of a Christ-shaped life, of Jesus working in us and through us? How do we access that strength and power? In our text today, Paul's going to go, man, life with God is not a commission-based job. It actually starts from a different source. There is, uh, I think we're getting invited today to work smarter, not harder, because we're working out of a different source, and God can actually do more with less when you're living out of the power of his presence in you and through you. So this morning, we want to ask, what is this source, and how do we get it? Jump into Ephesians 5, throw that passage up on screen, and at the center of this passage, I kind of want to start in the middle where at the center Paul says, uh, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So Paul contrasts getting drunk with wine and getting filled with the Spirit. What's going on there? Well, uh, this is the climax to these couple do's and do nots that Paul's had. There are these three do's and three do nots that are here. So it's do not be unwise, do be wise. Do not... uh, what was the next one? <laughs> Be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And these are like building on each other and connected. Paul's going, what is a life that's wise, that is discerning the will of God, that's filled with the Spirit? And he's contrasting it with this foolishness that leads to just drunkenness, right? I think there's a quick, you know, we can misread this. We can kind of look at this and go, hey, uh, so don't drink, Right? That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is not saying don't drink. If we want to get the contrast here, I think we've got to dig in and maybe step back and get a little bit of a theology of wine, if we will, a biblical theology of wine. Because uh, in wine in Scripture, wine, alcohol and all, you got the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Wine and alcohol, is, you got the good side of it, the bad side of it, the ugly side of it. And let's start with the good. So the good side is that, side is that God has given us wine, alcohol, and all as, as a gift for joy, so I love the scene in Acts 2. It's Pentecost, this huge festival. People are gathered from all over the world. The apostles are filled with the Spirit, and they stand up before the crowd, and they proclaim the gospel. And people are hearing them and going, man, they're just drunk with wine. Right? They're filled with the Spirit. People are saying, no, they're just drunk with wine. That contrast again. And I love Peter's response. He doesn't say, like, nah, we would never touch that stuff. He says, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. <laughs> Which the implication is you come back later, right? You know? <laughs> so if there's anyone here, if you want to start like a homebrewing ministry here, this could be your theme verse. You could put it on the back of your t-shirts. We're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning, right? <laughs> but it was a part of the Old Testament festivals, like the festivals of the people. And the sense was, this was a time where people would come and celebrate who God is and what God has done and the good gifts God has given. And wine was one of those good gifts from the Lord. <clears throat> we see it also as a sign of God's blessing and abundance. Psalm 104.15 says, God's given wine to gladden the heart of man. In Proverbs 3, 9 to 10, it's like this. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. 
So wine can be a sense of God pouring out his abundance. Uh, I love, even it, it can even be a sign of restoration, God's restoring power. I love it in Amos 9, he has this picture where God brings the people back from exile and restores them, and it says, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. I love that image, the mountains are like dripping wine. He says, and all the hills shall flow with it. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I think this is maybe why Jesus' first miracle in John 2, he's at a wedding and he makes not just a little, he makes a boatload of wine, right? He makes 180 gallons, it says to me, about 1,000 bottles, and it's the good stuff. It's a sign that, like, dude, the people are like, dude, you've saved the best for last to the, to the, the wedding host. There's a sense that this is a sign of God's blessing and his abundance. And so wine is a good thing. So Paul's not saying uh, wine is bad, Jesus is good. He's saying wine is good and Jesus is better. And if you have too much wine, you can go down some gnarly roads that lead to bad places, but you can't have too much Jesus. You get too much Jesus and it just keeps getting better and better. Like the more Jesus you get, the further you go into wisdom and discernment and discerning the will of God and aligning your life with the life-giving presence of our Creator. And so I think what Paul's point is to, he's inviting us to get drunk on Jesus, right? He's offering something better. <laughs> this is like 2,000-year-old aged in oak cask barrels, like vintage, vintner cream of the crop. This is like the good stuff. And you may have tried the other, but when you dig into Jesus and you fill your life with Jesus, you're getting the good stuff. Paul's going, this is better than what you asked for. That's important because there is, you know, with, with wine, with alcohol, you know, and all, there's the bad side of it too, right? We hit the good side, but the bad side is it can lead to some unhealthy patterns, lifestyle, behavior. Proverbs 23, 19 to 21, the king tells his son, he says, listen, my son, and be wise, and set your heart on the right path. Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. For drunkards and gluttons become poor, and drowsiness clothes them in rags. So when Paul lines up getting drunk with, with foolishness, he's kind of drawing on this tradition of like, man, it can lead you to a foolish lifestyle that leads you to do things that uh, you might regret and wish you hadn't done. You can squander your money or the resource that you have. You can, uh, it can lead down a path that is not healthy or good. When Paul talks about wine which leads to debauchery. Uh, this is drawn on a whole Old Testament tradition too where we see uh, like Noah and Lot, if you think of them. These are both kind of these fall stories in the Old Testament where God has delivered Noah, he's brought him out, it's now the sign of new creation, the flood's done and, and Noah's there and Noah just gets plastered and then something shady goes down with his son in the tent. And it's the beginning of this fall again, this curse. Or Lot, like Lot gets delivered out of God's destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah and he makes it out safely, but he uh, gets just hammered and then his daughters have sex with him. It's this other fall story. It's the beginning of something gnarly that you look back and they regret, I'm sure. And so the reality is you can do stupid things. That's true. This is like the office party where it's like, yeah, I'm just going to let my inhibitions down and all, but to make that mistake and like, dude, you look back and go, maybe my inhibitions were there for a reason, right? And so we've got the good and we've got the bad, but then we've also got the ugly, right? 
And the ugly, this is like the ugly side of wine or alcohol. This is like ugly drunk face, you know. Uh, this could be that guy on Mill Avenue on Friday night who's just like, hey, you're my best friend. Oh, I'm like, yeah, I don't know you, but oh, but it's so good to see you. Like my wife and I, Ricardo, we got here. He's like, hey, you got to go Friday night at Mill Avenue just to kind of, you know, part of town and all. I'm like, my wife was like, oh, this is bringing back all these horrible college memories. But um, <laughs> it was good stuff to you, but yeah. Um, <laughs> My favorite on Ugly Drunk, my favorite is uh, the wedding toast with the groomsmen, you know? Where dude like steps up, he's like, I don't have any notes. I didn't prepare anything because I'm just going to speak from my heart. And you know it's bad, you know it's dangerous territory when I, I'm just going to speak No, dude, get some notes. Like, and see, remember when we were in Mexico? No, you know, and, it's like, dude, yeah, and afterwards, you're trying to blame it on the alcohol, you're just like, <laughs> but you're the one who drank all that alcohol and got up and made that speech, so, yeah, so there's the good, there's the bad, and there's the ugly. I think one of the questions Paul's asking us is going, hey, ultimately, like, are you led by the spirits, or are you led by the spirit? Right? You think about the spirits, one of the reasons they call it Spirits historically, like whiskey, whatever else, you know, is that the sense of its ability to influence you and control you. Like you walk different. You talk different. There's a sense that it animates your life in a different way with a different presence. And Paul's contrasting going, similarly, there's a life that is animated by the presence of Jesus that fills you, that floods you, that emanates from you, and it, 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 it actually influences you to live in a different way because of the life that's within you. So he's going, hey, the invitation is to get drunk on Jesus. And Paul's going to show us in a second how to get hammered in the Holy Spirit. Right? Uh, so turn to the person next to you and say, it's time to get lit. Right? <laughs> Now, <laughs> all right, and as we contrast life with, you know, drunk with wine versus life in the spirit, question I want to ask, I think Paul kind of sets up, though, with some context, is going, hey, where do you go when you hurt? Where do you go when you hurt? So you think about addiction. Most addiction starts when it's like you're using that substance, that whatever that thing is, uh, to try and cope with some kind of loss or tragedy or painful experience in your life. You know, I uh, have a number of family members who uh, have wrestled with addiction and substance abuse and things like that. And to a T, we can look back and kind of go, yeah, this was when it started. This was the tragedy. This was the thing that happened where it started. And that could be the loss of a loved one who died. That could be that sports injury that shattered a dream. Like that could be that spouse who walked away. And one of the dangers is that in, in our culture today, we're not very good at grieving. We're not good at lament. We're not good at kind of sitting in it and creating space for Jesus to minister to us. And we can go very quickly to something to distract us, something to medicate, something to fill. The, I'm not saying medication is bad. There's a good place for medication. But we can turn really quickly to going, dude, I want to self-medicate to just avoid the pain. 
to avoid any grief or lament. And Paul says here that, uh, I think he implies that we're going to get hurt because we're walking in a war zone. He says, watch how you walk because the days are evil. There's this reality that you walk differently in wartime than in peacetime, right? You walk differently during a war than in peace. If you think of a soldier in the jungle, he's got a different attentiveness and vigilance and just kind of, he's aware. Uh, It's very different from how I walk with my kids at the zoo, right? Like we're just kind of looking at all the animals, you know? And the reality is both places, there are dangerous things that could either eat you or hurt you or, you know? Um, But in one, they're restrained. In the other, uh, you got to keep your eyes out because you you could get hit, right? So I think Paul's going, dude, we live, the days are evil. Like, evil's uncaged. It's unrestrained. And so watch how you walk for the days of evil. Last night we were at a friend's house and uh, took the kids swimming and playing in the backyard and all that. And then when it got dark, did my first scorpion hunting. So I'm a true Arizona now, right? We got the black light with the kids, and we're out in the rocks, and oh my gosh, you know? And, and what was crazy was how differently we walked, right? We had been in that same backyard an hour earlier when it was daylight, just running around, and the kids are laughing and having fun and playing, and now suddenly it was like, whoa, whoa, because scorpions are wicked, are wicked. And you realize, you know, there's a threat that could get me, and so I, I, I need to be vigilant in how I'm walking. Similarly, if we live in a world where the days are evil, and sometimes it's things we do, but sometimes it's things that are done to us. Sometimes it's things that happen to people that we love or around us. And because we're not good at grieving or lament, we're often quick to try and fill those spaces with stuff to just kind of medicate and avoid the pain. And Paul's going, dude, there's something deeper that God has for you in those places. If we can create the space to grieve, to sit in the sadness, to lament, and to bring our burdens before Christ, the very kind of holes that have been scooped into our soul through pain, Jesus can fill with his presence, his spirit. And he can minister to us in a way that is longer lasting, more powerful, and ultimately brings more life than any of the other stuff we might try and fill those places with. So where do you go when you hurt? Paul counsels us to make the most of the time. And I think with this, like our danger is distraction, right? Like there's so many things that we can get distracted by that keep us from making the most of the time. Because like wine, wine's a good thing. And so the problem is not wine. The problem is when we take a good thing and we make it the thing. We say this is going to be the thing that meets my needs, and that that can be way more than just wine. That's the example he uses here, but that could be a person. That could be that person, maybe it's romantic, where you go, man, everything is driven by what they think about me, and if they like me, and if they respond to my text, and if they say I'm good, and if they want to be with me, and all that, and and it can turn into this codependent, almost like an idol, where it's like our identity is dependent on what they think about us. That can be a distraction from making the most of the time. Or it could be technology. I think our phones today, like, dude, as a father with some young kids, like, I'm just growing more aware of how easily I can miss their childhood growing up because I'm distracted. Like, it's so easy to pull out the phone and just be uh, kind of constantly need to be entertained and all. 
And there's something powerful that we're losing at times, thinking about just having space to be with others, undistracted. So Paul's going, make the most use of the time. And the danger to doing that is not always bad things. Sometimes it's good things that we put in the wrong place and make it the thing. So I would ask this morning, where are you distracted? Are there things that you're turning to you that they, they might not be bad in and of themselves, they might be good things, but have they taken on kind of a place or a role in your life that's become unhealthy, even potentially addictive? Are they keeping you from, from space that Jesus might want to fill in a different way, his presence? All right, well, <clears throat> Jesus invites us to let him fill us. And this goes to the, 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 the point, the center of the passage here where Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you're like me, I mean, this, this can be a little strange to hear, right? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Like, how do you do something that's passively done to you? Like, uh, there's this guy, Andrew Wilson, and I love how he put it once. He's like, um, you know, if I tell you, like, hey, call your mom, that's pretty easy. Just pull out your phone and call your mom. But if I tell you, hey, be called by your mom. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't have a number for that. You know, like, <laughs> how do you be called by your mom? Paul doesn't say, hey, fill yourself up with the Holy Spirit. He says, hey, be filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you passively have that? How do you be filled with the Holy Spirit? And another question some of us might have is going, aren't I already filled with the Holy Spirit? Like, didn't, when I came to Jesus and all that happened, when I got baptized, like, didn't I get the Holy, you know, the Holy Spirit there? And what, what, So what's going on there? What does Paul mean, be filled with the Holy Spirit? Because I... And I think um, one of the ways that I think it would be helpful is to move from a liquid image to an air image. Liquid to air. And here's what I mean by that. Often we hear, be filled with the Holy Spirit, I think we have a liquid image in mind. So you've got a pitcher of water and you pour it into your cup or whatever. Uh, once it's full, it's full. It's done. Right? And some people, because of that, they, they kind of got their full cup. They go, man, I, I got filled when I came to Jesus and it, it's done. And some people have come up with some funky things like you need to get a second baptism or you need to go out and have some second experience that then you're going to get the Spirit, you know. And, uh, and it can go some weird places. But watch what happens when we flip it from a liquid image to an air image. The word spirit, it's the same word for breath and for wind in both Hebrew and in Greek. So Paul's original audience, they heard this and they would have heard, be filled with the breath of God. Be filled with the wind of God. Be filled with the presence, the power, the spirit of God. And suddenly it changes. You think of your body, you wouldn't go, well, hey, I got some breath back when I was born, and so I don't really need it anymore. <laughs> Doing good, God, I'm fine. <laughs> like, like my daughter is now learning to swim because she needs to because we need a, you know, Arizona, it's hot. And, uh, and as she's learning to swim, she's practicing how long she can hold her breath. And we're discovering it's not that long. <laughs> so you need, yes, you got breath, but you need breath to sustain you, to continue to survive. And, and similarly, um, not saying like you can lose your salvation or any of that kind of stuff, but what we are saying, you know, is that, yes, God has filled you, and there's the invitation here, Jesus, we need more of you. We need to go deeper, like expand our lungs so that we can receive more, help us to 
uh, live more fully by the breath, the air, the wind, the power of your presence, Jesus. Think of a sailboat. It's another image, right? Like a sailboat won't go, hey, we, we got a gust of wind when we left port, so we're fine now. It's like, no, you got it to push you off, but now you continually need it to propel you. The more wind you got, the more it can propel you powerfully to your destination, the journey you want to reach. So for some of us, going back to that image of the rowboat, I think it can feel like, man, we haven't been sailing, we've been rowing. You know? And so you're rowing, trying to do this Christian life on your own strength, trying to just do life on your own strength. And it starts to get tired, and your arms get sore, and you're like, man, God, I've been trying to serve you, trying to follow you, but I'm just out of energy, I'm out of breath, I got nothing left in me. And for some of us, some of us are like, we're going to endure, we're going to grit it out, I'm just going to keep going, I'm rowing, God, I'm going to make it there. And for some of us, if you're like me, it's probably more like stop at some point, you're just like, dude, I'm done, I'm tired, that's not working. And so we sit in the boat, and we're just floating out there with nothing to do. It's a bit more, so we try and distract ourselves. We might fill the boat with wine, right? <laughs> might fill it with our phone, you know, like kind of distraction. Might try and get that person in the boat with us. And yet we're still just stuck out on the ocean, motionless, alone. And the reality is each of those two, whether you're rowing and you're tired or whether you're giving up and you're sitting still, those both are very similar, because both scenarios, you're kind of looking up going, God, where is the strength and the power that you promise? Like, where is the vigor and the vitality for this life that you've given that Jesus said was available? What in the world can I do to, to, to grow and succeed and, 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 and experience the fullness of life that you promised? I think God looks down at us and guess what he says. He says, raise your Sales, right? Raise your sails. Kind of like at the beginning, but now it's upside down, right? It's not raise your performance like a commission-based job where you got to do all this stuff to get it. It's like, no, stop striving and start receiving. Stop relying on your own strength and lean into mine. Like, yeah, you can't make the wind blow, but I'm here and I'm blowing and just open yourself to be filled with my power and my presence that's here for you. Stop rowing and start sailing. All right, well, how do we do that? How do we, how do we start sailing? How do we raise our sails? Because that, that can be like, all right, well, it's a nice thought, but how do I do it? I think Paul gives us here four ways to raise our sails. Four ways be filled. First way, he says, you know, is to celebrate what God's done. He says, addressing one another with psalms and with hymns. I don't think he's just saying, like, hey, run around singing worship songs all the time. Or whatever. That would be really awkward. You show up at the office, and isn't it wonderful? I don't know. Like, <laughs> it would just be weird. But you think about a psalm and a hymn, and what they're doing is they are uh, recounting, read through the psalms, they're recounting, celebrating who God is what God's done, the reality of our predicament, where we're at, and like celebrate what God's done. He, one of my favorite things when I meet someone new, and I've had a chance to start meeting a lot of different new people, you know, is, is you to celebrate the stories. I'd love to hear what Jesus has done in your life and to share stories both from way back when but also from today, like how 
God has moved and is moving in our lives. And when you start to celebrate what God's done, I found the Spirit loves to blow into those places, right? Like the Spirit loves to lift up Jesus and glorify the Father. That's the Spirit's favorite thing to do. So when you start celebrating what God's done, there's something about that the Spirit of God loves to blow wind into those sails, right? The second thing he says to do here is to um, sing from the heart, to sing and make melodies. I love my wife often walking around the house, she'll, um, I'll just hear her kind of humming. Sometimes I'm like, she'll be in the other room and I'll just find myself, I'm starting to sing the song and I'm like, where'd that song come from? And then I'll realize a minute later, like, oh, she's humming it. And I didn't even think I could hear her, but somehow it, whew, I don't know, airwaves or something, right? And, and, and we're the first one, celebrate is with one another. He's just sing, you know, address one another. Here he's going, in your heart. So now it's more personal. That there's something about, man, orienting our heart around the goodness of God. Even when times are hard, to sing his praise. This is not like a, a, a singing that just pretends like the problems aren't there, but a singing to God that can show up in even the hardest places. I think of Job where he's like, man, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. There is something about praise that reorients our heart that the Spirit loves to fan that flame. Third, he says uh, to give thanks. Give thanks always. Uh, I'm struck by my daughter, Aiden. Uh, she is nine and uh, for the last few years, you know, we used to pray when she was younger. I'd say, hey, what, who do you want to pray for? What do you want to pray about? And she'd have, oh, I kind of want this thing, or there's this person, maybe we pray for grandma. Uh, and then we started using this thing we pray at night uh, called ACTS. Right? It's kind of an acronym for uh, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. So we'd start with adoration and just kind of go, hey, who is, let's think about something about who God is. So he's Father, he's Savior, he's Lamb, he's Lion, he's resurrection, he's king, he's Jesus, he's the shepherd, he's, you know, and you could just go on and on, and we'd, we'd pick one of those, and we would just adore and worship God for who he was. And when you start there, and then you go to confession, acknowledging your junk, and then you go to thanksgiving, and thanking God for what you already have, by the time we got to supplication and what we wanted, it was interesting to see my daughter, it, it's almost like, she's like, I'm actually doing good. <laughs> Fine, you know, like, Sometimes there'd be something we pray for, you know, but it tended to be a little more meaningful. There's something about when we give thanks and we celebrate who God is and we orient our hearts around him, that the, the spirit of God just loves to, man, just fill our sails, right? I think Paul is encouraging us, uh, don't just fight for your joy, like fight with your joy. Like your joy, this isn't a joy, again, that ignores the trauma or the grief or the hard things we're going through, but this is a joy that's a resurrection joy. It's strong enough to show up in the belly of the beast. Joy because Jesus is with us in the trials and in the heartache, and he's big enough to carry us through it and ultimately to overcome. Even if that's kingdom come. As we worship. I love uh, Ann Voskamp has this famous book, uh, 1,000 Gifts, but basically it's uh, her just chronicling, giving thanks every day, encouraging us to like, you know, journal, even like take one thing or 10 things and start the day with like acknowledging what you're thankful for. And she talks about even how during her own trials and some difficult circumstances, like just how that reorients you where you encounter Jesus 
in the tough places. So Paul says, celebrate what God's done, sing from the heart, give thanks, and finally serve each other, submitting to one another. Because the Spirit of God loves to blow wind into our sails through service when we stop fighting for our way and seek to lay down our lives to lift up and serve each other. There's probably no greater wind blocker, so to speak, than uh, self-centeredness, right? Like one of the best ways to know that you're full of the Spirit is when you're not full of yourself. And so one of the, 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 the first three things were oriented towards God and worship, and now this final thing is oriented towards one another. In the next few weeks, we're going to look more at what that looks like. In the rest of Ephesians 5, Paul gets into what this looks like in marriage and what it looks like with parenting, what it looks like with work, what it looks like with vocation and life. But there is an invitation to not live on our own strength, but to stop rowing and to start sailing. And I think the question could come, well, <clears throat> What if I raise my sails, but God doesn't blow into them? And two thoughts on that. You know, the first is, I do think there are seasons in our life where we don't feel the wind. Like there are dark nights of the soul and tough circumstances. And in retrospect, I found often we look back and we find the presence of God was perhaps more powerfully with us there than ever, even when we didn't feel it at the time. Some of the people I know who have the most joy and deepest walk with Jesus are some of the folks who've been through the hardest things, things I can't imagine. There's that, but the second thing is to go, dude, God loves to blow his wind, his power, his presence. The whole reason Jesus was exalted, we tend to think of the ascension as like Jesus went away, and no, like it doesn't mean Jesus went away, it means Jesus is exalted over all creation. And as our exalted king, he sends his spirit, his very presence. The spirit's not this oogly-boogly weird thing. The spirit is Jesus' very presence and his power poured into our lives as his people as he breathes in us and through us into his world. So the question I would ask this morning as as we come to the bread and as we come to the wine, as we come to Christ in worship, the first question would just be, where are you distracted? Is there something you've been seeking to fill your life, life with that's trying to avoid grief or medicate from pain or it's leading you to unhealthy places? That could be wine, that could be a person, that could be technology, that could be a lot of things, but we're gonna take a moment here after I pray to just uh, reflect and I wanna invite you to take stock and just look inside and just kind of, God, is there anything that I'm using, clinging to, trying to pour in to cover over a hole in a space that you wanna fill? And the second question is, and what does it look like in your life to raise your sails? Are there areas that, are, are there ways that you can reorient your life around gratitude for who God is and what God's done? Ways to celebrate, to lift up Jesus, to lay down your life and serve. Uh, not out of, I'm trying to row and perform for God, but actually I want to create space to experience the presence of God, to lift up and glorify Jesus in my life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that life with you is not a commission-based job. God, that we are, you're not waiting for us to see how hard we strive, how much we can sell, how much we can accomplish, how much we can do. God, the opposite. You call us. God, I just feel like there may be some people this morning who are weary, who are tired. And you're inviting them to come and have rest. God, I I pray that 
we would be a community that uh, is able to lament and grieve, does not try and cover over the hard stuff with things that can lead to distraction or addiction. But Jesus, that we're a community that's able to sit in it with you and sit in it together, God. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would blow, that you would fill us, both individually and collectively, God, as a community. Would you fill us with your wind and your strength and your power? Fill us with your breath, the intimacy, God, of your very breath. God, take us deeper, Lord, deeper into life with you. God, I pray that our lives would be animated by your strength, your vigor, your vitality in us and through us, God. So God, together as a community, we wanna raise the sails. Even now, we wanna worship you. We wanna put aside things that would distract. And God, we wanna lift you up and worship you and encounter you filling us continually and taking us further and deeper, God, with the power of your presence. In the name of Christ that we pray, amen.